Hello, everyone. You are listening to CCG Global Dialogue podcast with Dr. Henry Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. At this uh, special time, and of course, uh, uh, we are joining uh, both of you uh, to our Global Dialogue series to talk about uh, uh, the the past, present, and the future of the BRICS. And also the future globalization development. So this is really uh, a right time to talk about this. And uh, and actually, I know that uh, uh, Ms., uh, you know Lord Jim Neil actually just uh, published a paper on the BRICS uh, at Financial Times two days ago. So it's really great to have you. But I'd like to first uh, quickly introduce our distinguished guests today. Uh, Lord Jim Neil is a renowned economist and the creator of BRICS acronym and which later become BRICS. As we know, the BRICS stands for Brazil, uh, Russian, India, China, and South Africa. South Africa. But also, G- Jim has actually, uh, uh, until uh, very recently, he was uh, the former chairman of the Royal Institute of International Affairs uh, in London, which we know that as a Chatham House. And uh, he was also previously a former Commercial Secretary, Secretary to Her Majesty, uh, Treasurer of the UK Inner Government of David Cameron, and of course, in many years, he was the Chief Economist at Goldman Sachs. And recently, he became a member of the Pan-European Commission on Healthy and Sustainable Development. So you have many, many <laughs> uh, very important titles and you have a huge impact. You know, here in Chinese, you've been referred as the as the father of the of the BRICS uh, concept. So uh, yes. uh, your name is uh, is uh, you know no stranger here. So you, a lot of people knows that. And also, I'm very glad to have another uh, friend of mine and uh, Mr. Leslie Mustrop, and um, he actually is uh, leading the uh, the New Development Bank, and uh, is the vice president and the CFO of this BRICS. Uh, for countries, new development bank, and he actually held numerous <laughs> uh, important uh, positions in both the government of South Africa and also private sector, but also including the managing director and president of Bank of uh, America, Mary Lynch, uh, in South Africa. So uh, in 2002, he was also the first African to be appointed as international advisor to Goldman Sachs International where he and Jim, of course, where you and Jim worked together. So, you know, this is a, a very fascinating time. I, I just want to opening up on this. And this, this year marks the 20th anniversary of coining the BRICS uh, concept by you, uh, Lord Jim O'Neill. And, uh, and BRICS also has uh, evolved into an international uh, global player, actually. You know, we had also 15 years anniversary of the BRICS, uh, uh, you know, summit and cooperation, and also now the the concept of BRICS has been, you know, widely uh, uh, accepted and also uh, recognized around the world. And also, there's new countries uh, like Indonesia, like uh, South Korea, and, and many others actually uh, are, are doing uh, quite well. So perhaps, uh, uh, Jim, you can, I can start with you. Maybe you can say something to our audience, which we carry live, uh, both in China and, and outside China. And uh, 
So you, I know you just published an article in the in the uh, you know Financial Times, which is a, a really a great article. We we just saw that uh, you know I, I have a piece of your uh, article there, and uh, you 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 talk the many interesting concepts. You 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 know give the review uh, of the of the birth of the uh, BRICS, but also you mentioned about your vision at that time. You know you want to expand BRICS role. And uh, maybe uh, at uh, IMF uh, and the World Bank and uh, and even G7, you were thinking of uh, expanding that. So, so what's your what's your assessment? Maybe you can give us uh, some opening uh, remarks on that. Thank you, Jim. Uh, well, well, thank you very much, Henry. I hope you can hear me clearly yes, uh, through my uh, audio from London today. It's a it's a huge privilege to join you. On a, uh, uh, to speak at such a, a prestigious series, and especially with my good friend Leslie, it's a, a great uh, honor to be part of this discussion. <clears throat> I could probably spend the whole hour just answering this first uh, question, so <clears throat> let me try to uh, be very selective and as brief as I can. As you mentioned, uh, I had a, uh, an article published in the Financial Times uh, two days ago and because it is the 20th anniversary, actually a number of global media uh, organizations are actually covering uh, their own interpretation uh, of the 20th anniversary throughout the week. I just think uh, I heard this morning uh, the, the very well uh, regarded uh, Nature magazine actually has got its own feature uh, on the topic, which did include an interview with me too. And uh, during the whole week, uh, Bloomberg um, Television and their journalists have also been running a number of different pieces. <clears throat> um, so perhaps, I, perhaps I'll just try to select three opening comments, some of which I'm sure uh, we will pursue in further parts of our discussion. Uh, in contrast to the, to the headline that the Financial Times chose, it's important, as, as each of you know, that... Uh, when you write an article for a newspaper, you never have any control over the title or headline. You only have control over the content. Uh, and the FT chose to uh, have a headline that the BRICS have been a disappointment, which I think is uh, uh, has some truth on some levels, uh, particularly at the policy coordination level. Um, but of course, by definition, uh, any any group that involves China over the past 20 years, uh, that, is, that is obviously very far from the truth. Uh, because when I reflect on the economic developments of 20 years ago um, <clears throat> and compare it to what uh, our famous projection showed, uh, China uh, has surpassed considerably, considerably more uh, any of the scenarios that uh, I, I and my team uh, assumed um, in the early days of the BRICS idea. And um, in many ways, and I'm sure is often a feature of many of your discussions with fascinating people, uh, one, of, one of the most remarkable things uh, of the economic history of my lifetime and before is the uh, performance of China the past 30 years, uh, 20 years of which has been a brick. It's also true uh, that by and large, India has essentially achieved uh, the broad growth path 
that we outlined. Um, and that's why uh, today uh, China and India are so much bigger parts of the world economy than they were 20 years ago. Uh, it is the case, uh, unfortunately, that uh, uh, the other two in the original uh, acronym of mine, Brazil uh, and Russia, after having a very good first decade where they surpassed also all expectations of ours, uh, have actually had an equally very poor second decade. And ironically, each of those countries' share of global GDP is, is almost back to where it was 20 years ago. Uh, and in that sense, uh, the, the objective reality is when it comes to their economic performance, uh, they've been a disappointment. Uh, and uh, I would add, unfortunately, the same is, of course, true for South Africa also. Uh, and whilst there are many, many differences between them, uh, <clears throat> I think at the core dilemma, which relates to policy issues, I'll come on to, uh, each of those three show signs of, of the, of the much-discussed uh, commodities curse, uh, which can often be a problem for uh, many uh, emerging economies that are trying to break through the middle income trap. And this is a challenge that each of those three countries uh, faces in the future, in my opinion, <clears throat> even though there are many differences between them. Second thing to say, as you touched on, Henry, uh, especially in the very first paper of 20 years ago, uh, my whole point uh, of creating the acronym uh, deliberately is a play on the, on the English word BRICS, as in building BRICS, is that it seemed already 20 years ago that global governance wasn't adequately represented uh, by big emerging economies. And that was the basis of my paper, especially coming... Uh, two years after the, the creation of the euro and the uh, introduction of a single currency for every big continental European country, it seemed to me very clear that there was no great case for single representation of each of Italy, Germany and France in global go economic governance. And so the G7 could be both consolidated and expanded to include important emerging economies. Uh, and whilst that never happened, of course... Uh, seven years later, in 2008, prompted by the global financial crisis, we had the advent of the G20, which at its core was in reality to bring in these big emerging economies into the centre of global economic governance. And at the time, if we would have had this, this discussion in 2008 or even 2010, I would have been very excited about what this meant uh, for more representative and more equitable global governance. And of course, importantly with it, as I mentioned in the FT story, we also had the introduction of the Financial Stability Forum, which became the Financial Stability Board. And in 2010, we had the first significant reform in the voting shares and structure of the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, and with it... Um, the, uh, uh, the, the change in the basket of the SDR to include the Chinese RMB. Unfortunately, and hence why the FT picked on this title, in the decades since, and, and, and unfortunately so, so strongly exhibited during this crisis uh, there has, that we have now, there has not been any further significant improvements in global governance at all. Uh, and the contrast between uh, the G20 meeting uh, of 2020 and 2021 
and those of 2008 through 2010, in my opinion, is very disappointing and something that needs to be urgently changed for the future of all 7 billion people around the world. And then the third thing, very quickly, on the BRICS political group itself, um, <clears throat> I think, as uh, I know, because I talk to Leslie about this uh, quite often, on, on, a, on a sort of unnoticed level, there are very important positive developments that have taken place with a whole series of ongoing uh, discussions between BRICS ministers, whether they be uh, economic or health or political, that take place all the while. And by definition, that is a great development, as, of course, uh, was the development or the introduction of the new development bank that Leslie represents. But it is the case, <clears throat> in my opinion, and uh, one has to be careful to, to be diplomatic and I don't want to uh, offend uh, anybody, but it, it is the case that the actual cooperation between the BRICS political leaders on an economic basis has not really demonstrated any evidence that has materially helped uh, any of their economies. And uh, I finish for now with the, the rather sober reflection that if, if you look at the collective economic performance uh, before and since the BRICS political group was established, it has weakened. Uh, now, that may have nothing to do with the introduction of the BRICS political group. Uh, but it certainly raises the possibility, as I've touched on, that they haven't so far, so far, uh, done anything to ensure stronger economic uh, performance between them. But I, I apologise for already talking quite long, but I, no, as no. I said, I could have talked for the whole hour. Uh, and I'm <laughs> yeah. sure we'll come back to some of these topics. <clears throat> no, no, thank you. Thank you, Jim. I think, you know, as uh, as the creator of this uh, uh, BRICS uh, uh, concept, actually... <laughs> actually led to the to the BRICS country groups and also summits and all those things. I mean, the orig origin is, is, is from you. I mean, you are very visionary uh, in terms of uh, has, uh, proposing this, uh, uh, you know, very practical idea. And then you are a champion for the BRICS countries, I think, even yes. though I think yes. FC has actually uh, used the title <laughs> as a little, a little, a little uh, sensational. But, but actually, if, the BRICS countries still, I mean, as an emerging uh, 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 power, is still uh, particularly... China, you know, is doing uh, uh, still relatively well. But maybe just follow up on, on your on your uh, in this opening uh, uh, remarks. I, I just wondering that uh, you know you 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 envision at that time that uh, you know the global governance system maybe can bring in more uh, BRICS countries to participate. You know, we shouldn't yes. be a, a Western country dominated the system. You re you recommended that uh, that uh, BRICS countries should be you know uh, have more share in the International mechanism like uh, like MIF, World Bank, I mean, and 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 institution like that. So, and of course, G20, but actually, you know, we see uh, some ideological and uh, political divide on the G20. But but also, you mentioned about G10, uh, G7. Can that be expanded mm -hmm. to G10? Maybe including a few BRICS countries. Those are really uh, very very good ideas, I think. So, what do you see the BRICS countries in a global governance system now? <laughs> You know, I mean, we have to really work together as a, as a multilateralism. Uh, yeah. I think just not too long ago, we had this global, uh, you know, BRICS summit, and President Xi actually mentioned about how we can continue to support multilateralism. And uh, so, so what do you see the BRICS countries' role uh, in in the future in the global governance? Any 
any new uh, ideas or recommendations? I can't, I can't, uh, again, three very quick, uh, but in this case, definitely much briefer responses. The first one is I, I can't resist repeating a, a joke that I've said for much of the past 15 years and discussed with Leslie and his colleagues at the New Development Bank. Given, given how the political group uh, and the New Development Bank came about because of my acronym, I'm still waiting to be made honorary president of the Development Bank. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, the second thing to say slightly more seriously is it, it is remarkable uh, when I look back 20 years ago uh, as to what was in my head and what I thought would be much more uh, optimal for the world, um, how many of those thoughts are still in my head now even though the world has changed so much. If I, if I just answer this part of the second thing with two subparts very quickly, you know, with the existence of the euro and a shared monetary and fiscal policy in, in, in Germany, France, and uh, Italy, uh, I don't really understand the logic as to why each of the three of them, all of which have very poor domestic economic growth performance, uh, warrant a seat separately at some kind of global table of economic policy affairs. It is completely lacking in any rationale other than uh, economic history and perhaps, the, of course, the fact they all come from the same continent and have the sh same shared democratic values. <clears throat> and then the second part of answering that, um, I, I, I often think this is perhaps why we have some of the difficulties that we have in the world, because as great as the G20 development was, as anybody that participates in these uh, G20 meetings will always say to me, it's too many countries and too many people uh, to be a, a specially useful framework for making tough decisions. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in, in deliberately recognizing the difference between compromise and conciliation. And the more people that are in a decision-making group who are bored, by definition, the more people uh, default to compromise, usually the weakest compromise, instead of uh, deliberately trying to conciliate. And I think uh, a reformed uh, smaller group inside the G20, which would still be along the lines of what I said 20 years ago, would make a huge amount of sense. Um, and then the, the last part of answering you on this uh, for now is I, I, I think it would help if the BRICS leaders themselves had a stronger shared uh, collective priority uh, more frequently on some key issues. You will know, Henry, yourself, and Leslie will also, that uh, there has been occasions where there was a small window for important global leadership positions, such as the IMF or the World Bank, uh, to, to come from a big emerging country. I, I'm thinking of uh, particularly uh, about five, six years ago when the positions were up. And there did seem to be a chance that we could break the mold of one coming from Europe and one coming from the US. But one of the reasons why that never happened is because the BRICS countries themselves didn't uh, uh, be strong enough to share who that person should be from the emerging world. Uh, and and uh, the third thing to say, and because you, you touched on in your intro, 
again, I know because of my deep involvement in global health, uh, in the past two months, uh, some of the BRICS countries have been very uh, uh, opposed to the idea of the introduction of a global health board under the G20, despite it clearly being in their own very, very strong interests. Uh, and I, I think it partly reflects uh, the difficulties that the BRICS leaders have themselves on sometimes coming to a common uh, position, not just for themselves, but to contribute for the greater interest for the world. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jim. I think for those very uh, uh, stimulating ideas that uh, you have been uh, proposing in the past, but I've continued to think in that way. I, I, I agree with you. I think that... Uh, you know, maybe G20 is a bit too money, but uh, but uh, I also noticed that the, the the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, Richard, has actually proposed G6, uh, EU and the US, China, uh, India, and Japan, and, and 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 all the big countries. So 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 that so that that idea. Sorry, Henry, that that idea would be very similar to the one that I I suggested and still believe. That's right. I think you 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 you're right. So. So your idea is actually to bring China, India, and, uh, and other emerging market a bit more into this uh, global governance system. Yes. So that really, really uh, uh, would be very, very helpful. And I agree with that. Uh, you know, if, if this uh, old uh, uh, global governance system, including health system, is dominated by West countries, and, that, and then maybe sometimes getting politicalized, you know, those BRICS countries probably reluctant to, to, to play part. But I think we need to create a climate gradually to improve that. I, I agree with you. So, so Leslie, I mean, you are the <laughs> BRICS uh, man, basically. You, you, I mean, one of the products, as I agree, I think uh, Jim should be the honorary chair of <laughs> BRICS, uh, this new, new development bank. But, but you are the man uh, also running the, the think tank. And uh, you actually, you're coming from BRICS countries. So what do you think about this, uh, this, 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 this uh, you know, one of the uh, achievements of BRICS countries that by setting up this uh, uh, new development bank and also uh, in our head office in, in Shanghai, you're having a new office, uh, brand new uh, to move in soon, I, I understand. Also now from last several years, you know, new development bank has already land, you know, 224 uh, billion, you know, dollars and things like that. So, so probably you can give us a, uh, uh, your perspective about BRICS and, and New Development Bank. Thank you very much uh, for having me again. Good seeing you uh, also, uh, Jim. Um, first point I'd like to make, and also I want to just maybe frame this around maybe three propositions. The first point is that I think it is early days, uh, uh, Henry, to assess the sort of historical significance of uh, BRICS. I think also, it is 20 years since Germany, November uh, 2001, wrote the uh, paper, but it is only actually 12 years since the BRICS leaders and BRICS as we know it today. Uh, in 2009, the five leaders uh, came together, and it's actually only six years since the new development bank have been uh, created. So I think it's important to look at it through that historical lens. The 20 years is more the concept that, uh, that Jim sort of conceptualized have been in vogue, but the institutional formation is much, much sort of uh, Younger. So we're very much at the early stages of its, its evolution. My proposition uh, is that what BRICS have done is created a platform 
for what later on could become or is already the embryo for a more emerging markets uh, platform within these uh, global uh, uh, governance uh, structures. Now, as you know, the G20 was only formed uh, 22, 23 years ago uh, or so. But within the G20, these countries already had, there was an informal sort of network amongst these large emerging markets. Uh, Indonesia, maybe Mexico and others were also part of that dialogue. And they were they were at the forefront of articulating for reform within the World Bank, within the IMF, which led to what is known as voice reform 2009-2010, as Jim just uh, referenced. So, so the BRICS countries played a much bigger role over the last over this uh, period to help engineer those reforms to make the global governance system more credible, more legitimate, because we do have still today a mismatch between the economic power of the large emerging markets and their political weight as represented within the official uh, structures. So the, the, the G7 is obviously, you know, being overtaken by the uh, G20 and uh, uh, it, it is definitely democratized decision-making in many respects. But let me make the second proposition and maybe uh, there was a reason why maybe why Jim did, didn't uh, cover this in his, in his article for, uh, I'm sure, just because of the length, but there are some significant achievements of the New Development Bank and the institutions that BRICS have created that maybe was not flagged in the article. The first one is that many people don't know that there's another institution that BRICS created, while well, it's a virtual institution, it's called the Contingent Reserve Arrangement. And essentially what this is, it's a facility, it's a pooling of foreign exchange reserves of $100 billion, the bulk coming from China, $41 billion from China, 18 from India, 18 from Russia, and so on, and five from South Africa. Should any of our five countries have balance of payment uh, pressures, uh, anyway, this is an additional, this is a facility. Traditionally, you'd go to the IMF if you have balance of payment uh, liquidity challenges. This is now, a, a, this was put in place, again, the treaty was signed in 2014 already, and not many people know about it because it is a virtual fund. It's a pooling of reserves, and it will play a very important role in the event of a global liquidity uh, crisis. The second uh, key uh, and most significant achievement of BRICS have been the creation of the New Development Bank. This is an institution. It has $50 billion of subscribed capital. It has now approved up until last week, $31 billion of sustainable infrastructure. The bank have, have this huge um, uh, additional sort of, uh, sort of symbolically, the fact that it has never uh, uh, financed a coal-fired power station. It has a completely green and sustainable persona, which I think is also very important in this age of uh, climate change uh, that we are living uh, through. So the, so the second point I'd like to make is that New Development Bank is also still at its early stages, but it will also morph and mutate into a more emerging markets bank. You might know a month ago, we admitted United Arab Emirates, Bangladesh, as well as Uruguay, and we're in the cusp of, of introducing significant new emerging markets uh, over the next number of months and years uh, to come. So it was born, the concept was born in 2001. It sort of, you know, was still a, a, a baby by 2015 when the institutions was created. But one has to look at longer historical lenses to assess what potential impact this acronym, which Jim was the, the creator of, will have on uh, the uh, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you, uh, Leslie. I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, we, we should be a bit, bit more patient and then give a bit more time. And of course, uh, uh, the BRICS country, I mean, they, they, they come along and then they, they form this uh, new development bank, which is a, a great achievement, I think. And also now they have done so many 
uh, uh, you know, uh, disbursed for, for the sustainable development, but, but also you just said they have a big facility uh, also uh, set aside in case that uh, uh, anything needed. So, so this is a great, uh, a great achievement. Uh, I really uh, congratulate, <laughs> uh, I think, the, the achievement of New Environment. But of course, we, we, uh, we, we will have more uh, to come in, in the future for, I mean, I'm glad to hear all those, all those other emerging countries are joining the uh, New Development Bank and they set a very good examples of that. I'm, I'm sure Jim has a bit high expectations <laughs> as a creator, but I'm sure <laughs> you will be pleased to see the uh, the, the bank has, has has done very well. Uh, now I would like actually to change a, a bit of the subject. Uh, you know, uh, you know, recently we published a book called uh, uh, "Consensus and uh, and Conflict," and uh, and actually Jim has uh, has uh, you know actually contributed a, a, a paper for that. Uh, and called uh, "What Is the Right Way to Structure uh, Global Health: The Case for Radical New Organizations and Thinking." So, 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 thank you, uh, Jim, for 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 your contribution uh, of this uh, uh, of this uh, uh, you know uh, paper to to the book that uh, myself and uh, Alistair Michu, you know, <laughs> both of us edited, and it's actually uh, published uh, uh, internationally by uh, Jim. Talk about nature, actually, by Springer Nature Publisher. And then that, that book has actually already downloaded over 110 and 200 uh, and 200,000 already around the world. It's it's really a, a great book uh, that has been uh, well well received. Uh, you know, it's called "Consensus: A Conflict: China and the Globalization in the in the 21st Century." And uh, and of course, we have uh, have you contribute uh, a great piece to to that uh, uh, on this uh, on this uh, you know well well. Uh, uh, read uh, article, you know, it's really great. Uh, you know, what is the right way to structure global health, <laughs> which is a timely subject, and in the case for radical and new organizations. So, so f- as you wrote in this article, actually, Jim, you wrote about your experience in leading a group called the Global Review of Ant- Antimicrobial Resistance. So, so AMR investigate the lack of development of new useful. Uh, antimicrobial and excessive use antibiotics and its risk and enormous economic cost from the global health threat, which has been you know, also proven by the uh, COVID. So maybe just in time, we talk about this, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that you have in this book, uh, you know, how the international global health system and how the, you know, recently the outbreak of uh, Omicron as another variant of COVID, <laughs> COVID virus, uh, and then continue to spread uh, after Delta variant. So, so what, what's your, uh, maybe can you elaborate on your concept about, about this global health reorganization? Yeah. Again, thank you, Henry. Um, I, I'd be delighted to talk about this briefly uh, because it's something I've become uh, very, very passionate about. Um, uh, to, to make uh, it easier to, to talk about antimicrobial resistance, which is, even for those of us uh, whose natural speaking language is English, it, it's quite a mouthful. So it often abbreviates to AMR to make it easier. Yeah. But um, I also often say that it's, it's probably intellectually uh, the most uh, interesting thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I've had a very uh, fortunate professional career, but leading uh, a global independent review into the challenge of AMR uh, was fascinating. 
um, for many, many reasons, uh, but at the core because of its global importance. And it's, it's often known, uh, particularly in contrast to COVID or, or because of COVID, as, as the silent uh, pandemic that is killing as many. And I, my review became, uh, uh, in, the, in the world of global health, quite famous for saying that if we don't do something about the problem of, of antimicrobials, particularly resistance to antibiotics, by 2050, we will end... Um, I can hear yeah. him. Uh, um, if we don't do something about it uh, by 2050, uh, we could have 10 million people a year always dying because antibiotics won't work anymore. Uh, and with it, uh, a colossal loss of economic activity. And um, what is fascinating about uh, the mood now because of this current crisis is many, those few uh, health specialists that, that looked at our numbers and occasionally said five years ago that maybe they were exaggerated. Uh, actually, now they realize that on the contrary, uh, if you don't deal with global health threats, uh, they can be worse than global financial threats. And the last time I looked, uh, the, the, the loss of economic activity during COVID in the past two years around the world is three times worse uh, than that in the financial crisis. And this came from a global health crisis, uh, which takes me to the second core point of the, ch of the chapter I had the privilege of writing uh, for your book. And by the way, congratulations to you and Alistair on uh, such very powerful uh, uh, sales so far. And, and I hope it will become uh, 10 times or 100 times bigger, given its importance. No, seriously, given the importance of the issues. But um, the central idea is we, we need to stop treating health as some place in the corner that we only ever focus on when the problem becomes right in the middle of our face. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as the uh, the FSB was created to try and anticipate that the global financial system will always have enough capital and, and it will be ready for the next global financial crisis. We need to do the same thing with health. And the, and the central proposition is to have uh, a global uh, health and finance board under the G20, which would be represented by both finance ministers and health ministers. Uh, and in order to do that, we will be able to have a truly uh, effective global surveillance system for health, uh, adequate financing of the WHO instead of this slightly bizarre voluntary-based system. Uh, and every week of our lives, take, take for example, this uh, so-called Omicron uh, uh, variant of COVID we're currently dealing with and, and Leslie's country, South, South Africa, Africa. Is suffering because of the very rapid decision to impose travel constraints. If we had a proper, proper global health and finance board, we would be prepared to think in advance, all around the world together, how these things should be dealt with before they happen. And by that, it, it would not stop global health problems, but it would stop them from having the economic and financial damage and the destruction, which we're still living through nearly two years after the onset of COVID. 
Uh, and I've become very passionate about that. And together with uh, some of the people led by Mario Monti on the commission that I was part of, we are still trying to lobby very extensively for the initiatives introduced to have a task force to look at this under the G20 of Italy's presidency, uh, to have that taken up by the Indonesian presidency, and for this to become a central part of future global policymaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Great, <laughs> Jim. Yeah. No, no, no that's really, uh, uh, you know, uh, a very important task you're, you're championing and also, you know, has contributed so much to the to this uh, international <coughs> global health system. And of, of course, uh, in, in our book, actually, uh, you, uh, we just mentioned uh, this consensus or conflict. You stated that matching WHO's role and responsibility with the global reality is very important. So, so it is very true that lessons learned from COVID are desperately needed, you know, in terms to 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 transform uh, the reforms of global health governance system. And uh, on Wednesday, just just this week, and uh, members of WHO has agreed to set up an intergovernmental body to negotiate a draft of global pandemic treaty. And uh, so, do you see a, go a, a good sign? And uh, so, in terms of global health reform system and the global governance on that, where do you see, you know, countries like, uh, you know, BRICS countries, China, European EU, American, and how we can work together rather than, mm. you know, we have become so political, uh, that, uh, yes. you know, driven <laughs> by different countries or source of our region. I mean, it's, it should be coming, you know, uh, you know, either from uh, uh, nature or animal, but, but we have, we can have a, a predetermined uh, is uh, is a man made from lab. You know that that really spoil sour the mood to collaborate. So so how do you think about yes. we can uh, better collaborate on those issues? Yeah, I, th I think I think there are some some quite easy wins that could be made, Henry. To be honest, and, and again, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very very grateful that you give me an opportunity uh, to talk about this, particularly with an audience uh, in China, because China is in a position. Uh, to take great leadership uh, on this topic, given its given its its importance uh, in itself, but also uh, at the core of the BRICS countries. But I'd say three things, three very easy things need to happen. As I said, there has already been a task force now established uh, following uh, uh, the G20 meeting, and I know. Uh, that the WHO uh, uh, is, is in the center of trying to uh, see how to implement two parallel things. How could you practically implement a global health and finance board? And, and secondly, uh, how can you ensure representative financing of something like global vaccine distribution uh, or uh, money for new antibiotics or uh, many other things, but crucially, the financing of the WHO itself. When we stand back from, from the, what's going on and look at it from 40,000 feet, the WHO should be financed in the same sort of way that the IMF is, for it to be a, a voluntary thing, which allows, for example, the, the brilliant contributions of the Gates Foundation to be a crucial thing for such a centrally important organization for the world, it, it's crazy. Uh, and, and so we need to get 
hopefully under the under the Indonesian presidency, some agreement uh, to these simple things. And the final thing to say, which I, I'm describing as simple, but this part of it is, is going to have to emerge through time. I, I think involving the private sector, especially in the West, we need to rediscover what I describe as profit with purpose. Um, uh, in the world of high finance, uh, for much of my professional life, uh, a lot of international business appears to be profit for the purpose of profit, which is great. Making a lot of money is great because that's what generates wealth. But we have to make sure that societal challenges can't just be regarded as the responsibility of other people and have that at the center of allowing and supporting our policymakers to think more inclusively of what economists describe as externalities and internalizing them to be part of regular thinking. And that goes back to why uh, a global health and finance board is, is, is so powerfully needed, which, by the way, is not that different than what we need, of course, to tackle climate change. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, uh, on, on the climate change, I mean, we had, uh, uh, you know, China, U.S. actually issued a joint statement there. So, so it yes. you know, shows that you can be collaborating and, uh, and uh, take some lead on, on those uh, two big uh, countries. Sorry, Henry, one other, one other important point I, I, I meant to mention very quickly is when I discussed this with an astute Chinese observer uh, recently when I, I was bemoaning the fact that I didn't think China was enthusiastic yet for this idea as I hoped, this person pointed out that so far in the brief history of the Financial Stability Board, every leader, the four leaders of the FSB, have all come from G7 countries. Mm. Uh, and therefore, going back to our earlier points, if you really want to create a new body that is truly shared by G20 members and inclusive of emerging countries, uh, a very sensible thing from Western countries is to consciously, deliberately encourage uh, a leadership position uh, in terms of a president or chair uh, from an important emerging country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you are, you are, I think this is, again, visionary, and then you, you are really champion for the BRICS countries. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, China is doing quite a lot. I mean, since the pandemic, uh, China has pledged, uh, President Xi actually pledged $2 billion U.S. dollars to, to F, you know, developing countries. I know that uh, President Biden pledged another $2 billion U.S. dollars at the G7 summit. And President Xi pledged again another $2 billion in, in another. <laughs> so I'm glad to see that kind of a you know, healthy uh, competition. But also, uh, China has donated uh, almost 2 billion doses of uh, vaccine. And just, just, just this week, uh, President Xi announced the FOCA, you know, China-Africa summit. China has donated another billion, uh, uh, and also including joint production of another billion vaccine to African countries. So, so China actually does a lot already. And uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, if, if the if, this, if those uh, financial board or you know, healthy board and, uh, and is vacant for China and then it's not really letting China play some active role there, it's not, not that fair. I mean, that's the problem. I think when you have this international mechanism in discussion, uh, China is always on, on, on the side and not really playing some active role. But actually, I think the, 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 the China action does a lot already. And we should go into that and have a 
a healthy cooperation uh, on that. So talk about this cooperation. I mean, Leslie, I want to come to you. Now, you, you know that, uh, uh, and also this week, I mean, EU uh, uh, president and, and, and chair announced, uh, you know, European is providing 35 billion euros on the uh, Europe, EU gateway, I mean, on the infrastructure, uh, just, just, just these two days. And of course, uh, uh, President Biden, uh, you know, uh, passed a law about 1.2 trillion infrastructure Bill and G7 also proposed a Build Back Better world, you know, B3W. And of course, this is the eighth year of China doing the BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So infrastructure is really, I, I can see that as the largest uh, uh, draw, largest uh, uh, common denominator and attraction for the world for the next seven decades, probably, that we can still working on for many developing countries and, uh, and, uh, and maybe another new, I'm not saying Marshall Plan, but maybe a global a uh, 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 stimulating plan to, to, for the world to, to work together rather than we're getting into this kind of geopolitical uh, fight and, uh, and argument. So, so what do you think, I mean, as a bank, as a banker, you know, development bank, the, the infrastructure, the opportunity in the developing countries for BRICS countries, for, for US, EU, other uh, Western countries, what, 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 are the, you know, what, what can be done for those things and what's your assessment? Thanks, um, Andrew. I think, firstly, I think the uh, recent pronouncements uh, in a lead-up to uh, COP26 is a clear indication, and because of all the announcements you've just made reference to, it is going to be, I think, a, a renaissance for a period of renaissance for development banks because of the significant new focus on sustainable uh, uh, infrastructure. There is so much new financing needed to replenish existing infrastructure and to build new infrastructure that is resilient and uh, sustainable. So I think one of the first key points to make in uh, this regard, and, and Jim already touched on it, is that traditionally people have always looked at infrastructure as hard economic infrastructure in terms of ports, airports, uh, um, high-speed rail, um, uh, and so on, power uh, infrastructure. But social infrastructure is also now becoming very, very critical. Uh, Jim just mentioned the commission that he was part of, with, which looks at health and, and sustainable development in the European Union. And within multilateral banks, we are also now placing huge emphasis on that uh, uh, component. Coming back to, to infrastructure, I think one of the most biggest significant developments here in China is the increasing focus now on greening the Belt and Road. And in fact, I'm hoping that many people hope that maybe the words will be used, green uh, Belt and Road, and not just making reference to try to green the, the Belt and Road, because that will send a very powerful signal. And China's already done this to a degree, if you like, with the announcement that it will no longer finance uh, coal-fired uh, power outside of uh, uh, China. As you know, uh, the announcement was made uh, in the build-up uh, uh, before uh, COP. So infrastructure can play a very critical role going forward to towards uh, greater sustainable uh, development. But there's one other point I, I wanted to, to make, which um, is also very critical, uh, um, Henry, and that is that our institutions that we have right now are not necessarily fit for purpose for the new realities that we are confronted with. Jim made reference to what he called externalities because of the, uh, there's obviously the pandemic that we just lived through, there's uh, climate change, 
there's a whole range of other uh, uh, issues that are transnational, that cross borders or spillovers, as it is often uh, called. And our institutions are not necessarily suited to deal with these. This might be a moment to go back to ask the questions whether we in fact have the right uh, institutions in place and whether we should reform some, innovate in order to make sure we can we can tackle these new uh, challenges that we are confronted uh, with. But the, the, the last point I want to make is that the, the biggest uh, potential, game-changing potential for the infrastructure is mobilizing capital from the private uh, sector. As you know, uh, Jim, public sector is very constrained fiscally. Uh, multilateral banks have uh, capital adequacy uh, uh, limitations. The biggest pools of capital is out there in institutional in terms of the, the pools of savings are in private uh, hands. We need to find a way to de-risk infrastructure in such a way that we can make it attractive for these institutional investors to um, invest in sustainable uh, infrastructure. And a lot of that is uh, being done at the moment. And I think we're going to see a, a significant movement towards crowding in private sector capital uh, in the next five, uh, five to, to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you, <laughs> Leslie. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, uh, there's many things. I mean, social infrastructure is also a very important uh, health system, you know, financial system. And of course, now we, we're having talking about, you know, hard infrastructure where I think all the world have, a, I think we're on a consensus now. The world needs infrastructure. I mean, from US, EU, China, you know, China probably does the best now. Uh, you know, the total length of the speed railway in China is equal to the next 10 countries combined, you know, uh, probably where the U.S. military budget is equal to the next 10 countries combined. Maybe we should spend more on the infrastructure uh, worldwide. And, and that's why I really, uh, uh, you know, uh, think that Jim is really great, a visionary when, when, when he talks about, you know, how we can reform IMF, World Bank, and we have more uh, uh, emerging countries participation there. Uh, which I think is is really a, a, a very wise uh, uh, suggestion. Uh, but now, Jim, you, you know, I mean, World Bank, and uh, now we we also have uh, other development banks. Uh, we have AIB, Asian Infrastructure Bank, and when new development bank, can we have some kind of international bank <laughs> board of some kind, or di- a consortia, or, or uh, alliance of kind? You know, like let's can we combine B3W and BI? And or maybe upgrade uh, AIB to go, GIB, a global infrastructure bank. So, so something in that direction, because I, I see, you know, how we can multilize this global uh, initiative on infrastructure. Maybe it's time now, if, if this is the consensus of every major countries, why can't we work on this? You know, uh, uh, because now you see the WTO, actually, because of the, this virus, we are postponing the <laughs> MC12 uh, at the end of this month now. And uh, but infrastructure is, seems every country uh, has the consensus. But how we tackle that? How we can really work with BI and B3W? Uh, uh, Jim, your, your opinion, please. I, I love the spirit of, uh, of how your mind uh, approaches this, this question. Um, it, it's very consistent with the, the spirit of how my own mind is, um, especially since I led the uh, AMR review. And the we need to have um, people open their minds to think a bit more, let's call it laterally, instead of in a, such a narrow, conventional way. Because uh, otherwise, as the past 20 years or longer has shown, we cannot deal with the challenges that the world is, is faced with. 
And uh, three specific quick things in this regard. First of all, I can't miss the, the opportunity in this regard, in the spirit of Leslie's comments about uh, social infrastructure spending, uh, but linking it to global health. One thing that all five BRICS countries share very clearly is the significant challenge with drug-resistant TB. And I have said for many, many years, a obvious, simple, clear area of genuine, fruitful policy cooperation for the BRICS countries is to try and finance new, uh, effective um, vaccines or drugs to deal with TB. Because otherwise, the BRICS countries will not reach their potential. Um, and that's just one simple example. But secondly, in the broader spirit, uh, arguably, uh, as both of you would know, the World Bank's investing arm, the IFC, already could be the basis for exactly such a more ambitious global uh, entity. Um, but the IFC and all these other ones need to think in a truly global public purpose sense. When, when, uh, and, and the last thing to say, in the context of this, and I, I throw it back to the, the wonderful spirit of how your mind is approaching it, Henry, you know, the idea of a global health and finance board should be seen really ultimately sometime in another decade or longer, a global public goods board in that we have a, we have a world in which economic policy is not just trying to deal with very narrowly measured uh, outcomes that are defined by conventional macroeconomics. Because what we have found in our lifetime is they generate these enormous externalities uh, and they become so big that they threaten the very framework in which we all live on. And so you are exactly right about, about the kind of degree of open-mindedness and the degree of thinking of these things in a different framework than we have done for much of, of certainly of my professional lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jim. I, I think you're right. You know, Ch China is actually one of the transformations. China was able to lift 800 million people out of property. I think this, this great infrastructure transformation is taking place in China. So, so, so now they, they, they want to, uh, you know, probably co collaborate with the world on, on those infrastructure. That's where BI is really implemented for the last eight years now. And as a matter of fact, we are, we are just tomorrow, the, uh, the China-Laos railway will be opened. <laughs> you know, we're connecting the ASEAN countries. So, so you see that kind of infrastructure uh, uh, activity will really be the drive and, and, uh, and the peacemaker uh, for the world, I, I agree. You know, you said IFC and all the other international financial institutions can we really revigorate, you know, <laughs> revitalize those institutions with with the AIB, with New Development Bank. Uh, you know, so 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 Leslie, what do you think about <laughs> how we can get all the development bank work together? You know, on BI and on many other initiatives. I think there's already very deep collaboration amongst the uh, development uh, banks. Uh, it's now uh, deepening because of the climate uh, change uh, um, agenda. 
I mean, as you might know, recently at COP26, the multilateral banks issued a joint statement where essentially almost half of all of their future development assistance and exposures, lending, whether it be loans, guarantees, equity, will be towards uh, climate finance. Uh, most of the of the institutions had targets before of 25, 30, 40 percent. It is now uh, progressively moving uh, moving up. So, so that deep collaboration is already happening, but we haven't yet consolidated it as a system. We still function as individual as individual uh, uh, institutions, and we could probably better uh, sort of um, act as a as a system if we if we act in a more complementary uh, uh, fashion. But I think what what the climate change agenda has done is going to be a catalyst for that greater uh, collaboration. Um, there's already discussion, for example, Ken, uh, Kenneth Rogoff argued uh, recently in a Project Syndicate article for the creation of a World Carbon Bank, because if each country put in place their own carbon policies, like the European Union is putting in place a carbon board adjustment mechanism, set of proposals, uh, we will have very inefficient uh, outcomes. So I think some institutional reform might still be necessary, uh, Henry, but um, I, what I can definitely indicate is that multilateral institutions uh, have deepened their collaboration over the last couple of years, more so recently because of the collective agenda on climate change. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Uh, thank you, Leslie. Yeah, uh, I, I want to come back to, to, to Jim for, for, for another question. When you you were <laughs> served as a commercial secretary for, for, for the UK government, and uh, and you know all those international, you know the new uh, treating schemes, you know like uh, you know RCEP is will be effective January first. CPTPP is another emerging uh, new uh, global, you know at least for the Asia Pacific trading system. And uh, UK is planning for join that. China is planning for join that. So what do you think of this kind of new, uh, you know, twenty first century new high standards uh, uh, trading system that can really uh, revitalize the global system, including the WT reform. You know, how do you think those can initiative can can happen? And also the, the relation between and China, UK maybe can work on on these new initiatives. Uh, thank you again, Henry. Um, I mean, this is another question that could take uh, more than an hour to answer. But uh, uh, I'll say two things, um, uh, which are contradictory. First of all. Uh, and this is talking very much as an economist, quite often uh, I think people over-exaggerate the importance of legal trade deals. If you look at patterns of global trade, or the best example I can ever give you is that uh, at least until the past two years, Germany had started to export more to China than it did to its neighbour Italy, even though it was part of the, uh, the same uh, EU uh, with a common free trade deal and the same monetary system. And it's because, of course, of the enormous rise in domestic demand in China uh, and demand for, for the kind of goods that Germany is so powerful at. And the, and the truth of the matter is global trade is really driven by relative rates of domestic demand. Uh, and, and as part of that, and linked to aspects of your previous question that I didn't have a chance to talk about, I would love to see within the BRICS and separately, China and India cooperating on some of these things a lot more. Because if you look at how they've emerged the past 20 years, and if you look at the world the next 20 years, if China and India 
get their own trade cooperation rights, it would literally transfer, literally, without any exaggeration, transform patterns of global trade. And that would be the basis of so many other positive things that would happen. The contradictory part is, of course, and that's my second point, is that we need to have uh, more and more sophisticated trade agreements to deal uh, with the rules in which we all engage with each other around the world. But it is not as important as making sure the countries that are behind those trade deals want to see uh, the opportunities being equally shared between them around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, the BRIC countries should really uh, have a, a further collaboration. I mean, they are already, uh, you know, very, very uh, uh, important in the players. And uh, I think that, uh, particularly as you mentioned, China and India, I mean, <laughs> being the two largest neighbors, I mean, have a similar <laughs> 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And there are so many things. I've been to India a few times and, and I saw so much potential for, for China to, uh, companies to, to, to work there. I mean, there's so much to invest and to collaborate. And, uh, and of course, I think, you know, if we can really get these two countries to collaborate, I mean, you, you're right. The, the, <clears throat> the, the global trade pattern could be uh, uh, changed as well. And uh, because uh, uh, China has already become the second largest economy and you projected the India could someday take over Japan, the third largest economy. And, you know, that, that could still... Uh, you know, uh, uh, happening. And, uh, and I think there's all the reasons that we, we should collaborate uh, for the BRICS uh, countries. Like, that's what the President Xi said, you know, at the BRICS summit, the multilized and we should support and collaborate and, uh, and work together. Uh, I think we almost come to the <clears throat> end of, uh, of a discussion. I know you've been uh, quite busy, but we still have a, a two or three questions from the, the Medias we, we we collected, and we we my, my staff was showing me there was almost hundred thousand people uh, watching us online, and uh, so 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 this is a, a very uh, a very important uh, section. Uh, there's a there's one question from a major Chinese uh, news uh, uh, from China news agency. It talks about the BRICS cooperation involves countries uh, in South American, Europe, and Asia. Uh, what is the significance of cooperation between Europe and Asia? And the cultural exchanges between East and West, and uh, so 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 you know what about BRICS countries and Western countries and yeah. uh, US, EU, and all the others? I, if I realised there was going to be one hundred thousand people here, Henry, I, I would have gone to the head. I would have gone to the hairdressers and uh, made myself look much better. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm very grateful. Um, you know, I have a simple uh, part of answering that. I, I, I'm a, uh, a very fortunate person that, uh, at least until COVID and for, for much of the previous 30 years, traveled around the world frequently. Uh, and in my view, one of the greatest uh, things that ever happened to me was the, the good fortune and, and the ability to be able to travel to countries in, uh, in Africa, Latin America, uh, of course, Europe, uh, North America and, and in particular to Asia. And uh, you can only really think truly globally if you experience uh, how people in local 
societies feel uh, because that only gives you a flavor of being able to understand uh, the way people think and the cultural differences. And so, of course, and I would argue one of the great strengths of the BRICS group, which is often overlooked, the fact that it does include Brazil from Latin America, two countries uh, from Asia and, and Russia that's in the middle of them, itself is a source of great cultural uh, and geopolitical strength. Uh, and so the more these cultural exchanges can take place and the societal and economic things that can be thought of for shared benefit that go with it, 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 it as what I would sometimes lazily call, it would be a no-brainer. Uh, it's one of those free lunches in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, maybe this question also, you know, there was talk about some some culture. You know, you, you mentioned in your recent FT article, you talk about South Korea become mm. really very successful, and uh, and also China to that matter. You know, uh, as well. I mean, we have also yes. Indonesia uh, coming up very quickly. So, do you think this kind of Asian culture, you know, diligent, hardworking, you know, uh, 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 central, you know, government play a lot of role and the coordination. And uh, so would, would that make a you know, BRICS country uh, a little different? I mean, even given your uh, number of BRICS countries, it seems the yes. countries, BRICS countries in Asia perform relatively well uh, compared with other yeah. continents. I mean, this is a fascinating uh, uh, issue. And I, I tried to, my original contribution to the FT was a, a longer length where I, I actually tried to have a paragraph on this exact topic. Because back in uh, the 2003 BRICS paper, we studied 50 years earlier what would a similar analysis have suggested about 2003. And what is fascinating is that already a number of North, North Asian uh, societies reached the potential such an analysis would show. Uh, Japan, uh, Hong Kong, uh, and of course, of course, South Korea, which in my opinion is arguably the most interesting country in the world of more than 45 million people since I was uh, uh, starting professional life. Because today it's the only one that has a GDP per capita uh, as those of European G7 members. It is an astonishing achievement. And it is a shining example, as is much of North Asia, uh, for so many other ambitious countries around the world, and frankly, including Leslie's own South Africa, how, which has a similar population to that of South Korea, how can you achieve this shared uh, prosperity uh, in order to deliver a better life? And uh, there, are, there are great virtues about the interconnection between some greater involvement of government enormous use of education and technology. And I think it's something that many uh, North Asian countries share uh, really powerful evidence of, which, which, whether it be Latin America or many countries in Africa, need to understand what they can adopt for their own societies and implement. Uh, Leslie, do you have any uh, you know, uh, comment on, on those questions? And... <laughs> Of course, New Development Bank is is uh, is doing all those uh, you know great 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 things, and uh, so so what do you think of the BRICS? Uh, there's actually a question about uh, the concept, uh, you know, 
uh, and uh, when the first uh, proposed is is included uh, five rapidly developing emerging countries, but but now we have uh, you know. You know, Jim mentioned about South Korea and also Indonesia and 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 many other Mexico. You mentioned. So, what do you think about other countries that uh, can can bring? To, you talk about quite a number of join your banks. Uh, what what do you see in the potential as a whole for those emerging economies? Thanks, Andrew. I mean, I think as I mentioned earlier on, I think one of the contributions that BRICS and this is what Jim will always be credited for and what the new development have, have done, as I said, is to create a coordinated voice for emerging uh, markets because all the other banks, all of them, Asia Development Bank, European Investment Bank, uh, IIFC, EBRD and so on, all of them have a control structure in terms of the who is the most uh, um, uh, votes uh, dominated by the uh, developed uh, world. The New Development Bank and, and BRICS is a unique construct also from a global governance perspective in a sense that here you have five countries coming together, very different sizes of the of economies and yet have an equal say. Uh, China's got a GDP of 15.6 trillion, for example. It is 31 times bigger than South Africa. But South Africa also contributed $2 billion in equity, and China has no bigger say. It has no veto power. If you look at the control structures in the world since the, after the Second World War, when the IMF was formed, the World Bank, uh, and so on, obviously the U.S. was the biggest economy way back, uh, 50% in, in 1944. So they entrenched control structures for themselves. But today, here you have the second largest economy sitting as an equal partner with a much smaller economy. So from a governance perspective, you also have a unique experiment which one can see as reasonably uh, uh, successful. Clearly, what is required now is to take a fresh look at globalization for countries like uh, South Africa, for countries like Brazil, to see how can we become the South Koreas in the next couple of decades uh, uh, to come. There was a, I would argue, and, and you know, time is too short now to sort of uh, make the case that it was a, a sort of favorable period of globalization, which I think enabled the rise and growth of uh, Korea. Favorable factors also here in, 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 in Asia, which encouraged and enabled the industrialization of uh, Korea over the 90s. 70s, 80s, 90s, into what, as Jim has said, now in a top 10 GDP uh, per capita. But there's a lot of lessons we could certainly learn from uh, Korea as, as a shining example of a country that was transformed from, you know, developing country uh, GDP per capita in the 1960s. In fact, I think Korea had the same GDP per capita as Ghana, for example, uh, today. And if you now look at the, uh, the the countries in economic size, it is just so uh, uh, different. So in, in, in short, I think that the world has changed quite fundamentally uh, and we need to derive lessons and extract what we can learn from those uh, success stories to try and reproduce them. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you said something uh, very significant. You know, war has changed uh, profoundly. And I think the governance system of uh, new developed banks, you know, every, every country is relatively equal and uh, have a really, uh, you know, uh, important role to play. And that really fits Jim's vision, you know, that uh, new uh, emerging countries should be more into the, you know, globalization that uh, after Britain Wood system, you know, we should really reform that and participate more so that we can really, uh, you know, get, reduce our geopolitical tension. We have more economic uh, say and economic benefits of that. So that's really uh, uh, the spirit. I think Jim has already damaged, you know, 20 years ago and you've been, really uh, practice that uh, at the New Development Bank. And so that is really something we should really, uh, you know, other countries, particularly current uh, developed uh, world G7 uh, uh, and, and also international governance, we should think about, you know, this kind of new governance style. 
I now have a final question actually from uh, a Brazilian newspaper, you know, um, um, also from the uh, correspondent uh, Marcelo Nino. He, he's the chief correspondent based here in China. And he heard about <laughs> uh, Jim will be appear on my, on my program. And he actually raised uh, two questions uh, from the old Gobo, uh, which is a, a Brazilian uh, major, uh, one of the major Latin American um, correspondent in China. The first question is comparing your expectation 20 years ago to the reality today. Which of the BRICS uh, countries disappoint you the most and why do you think that had happened? First question. Second question, what should be the BRICS main focus today to help with a better global governance? So Jim, we, we will let you to answer this question raised to you. Um, thank you. I, I, I know o Globo uh, as a uh, financial newspaper very well, and uh, amongst the other great things about uh, the BRICS acronym, it's allowed me to travel to that beautiful country, Brazil, uh, many times. Uh, I'm going in the spirit of trying to uh, uh, balance everything out. Uh, I'm going to contradict myself, but it, with a, in a sense of humour. Uh, China is obviously been the most successful BRIC. But for me personally, in the spirit of what Brazil also represents, which is probably the greatest soccer football playing nation in the world, China is also the biggest disappointment because it never took ownership of my own obsession of Manchester United Football Club in England. <laughs> and in the days of the great global, uh, that brief period of the golden era between the UK and China, I had the privilege of, uh, of being on that tour with President Xi and his advisors allowed him to be uh, succumbed to going to visit Manchester City's ground and not Manchester United's ground. And uh, I, I don't know how I failed in my, in my ambition there. Uh, the second thing to say is, is of course, uh, Brazil and Russia, uh, as the journalist asking the question knows well, uh, equally share... Uh, the position of being the most disappointing. And in many ways, uh, uh, Brazil's is, is more than Russia's because Brazil has better demographics than Russia. But I, I quickly add one of the, again, as people at O Globo and many other Brazilian newspapers know, uh, the, Brazil is often uh, in some ways the most unpredictable of the BRICS. I, rem I will never forget uh, when I was there in 2010, when when Brazil was doing so well, many people, including representatives from O Globo, uh, would ask me whether they thought Brazil could grow as strongly as China in the next decade. Literally, seriously. And I had looked at them and said, you must be mad. Uh, but that year, of course, in 09, they kind of had done nearly. Uh, and today... Uh, many people probably think Brazil can never grow ever again, uh, which, of course, is equally ridiculous. Uh, so what I would say is, um, to finish for now, uh, I, I think both Brazil, especially Brazil, certainly will not be anything like as disappointing as it's been the last decade. Uh, and, and maybe that's the case with both South Africa and Russia also. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Okay, great, great. Thank you, uh, 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 Jim. And uh, so, actually, today, you know, uh, you know, we're coming to the close, and uh, 
you know, we have a very uh, exciting uh, uh, discussion. You know, you give us the, uh, the you know, history re review and prospect uh, of the BRICS countries and also the, the role that uh, how we can, the BRICS countries can play in the global governance system, global health system, global economic system, and also how China, you have been giving high credit for China uh, development and, uh, and also other BRICS countries like uh, 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 South Korea. So, so it's, I think we have touched on, on many subjects and particularly how the developed world uh, Western countries can really work with China. I mean, you give a lot of good advice on that. And uh, so, so really appreciate it. So, so I want to uh, conclude with maybe your, your concluding remarks. And uh, uh, we, we start from uh, Leslie, you know, about our, our, our subject today and, and other topics you, you want to uh, finish with your concluding remark. Thanks very much. Uh, look, we are at a very uh, interesting uh, period and it's an historic uh, crossroads really where I think this whole drive towards uh, a gr the green uh, transition will provide fresh impetus for institutions uh, like ourselves. We are obviously hugely excited about becoming a much bigger, more emerging markets focused institution becoming much bigger than what Jim dreamed of in, in 2001. Uh, I mean, over the next uh, five, six years, I mean, I would anticipate that this bank is likely to have, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 uh, members and become a bigger emerging markets uh, block that will make a profound contribution to uh, the world of multilateralism. And within the space of five, six years, this institution has already made its mark in terms of its um, its contribution. So, so um, we are... I'm very excited, and I think I share this with my colleagues about what this new phase entails. Now, the global pandemic has kind of depressed sentiment very much, uh, uh, Henry, as you know. But I think it seems to us that if we integrate our approaches around health and integrate that into sustainable development, we 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 might be able to to um, uh, uh, conquer this uh, global uh, pandemic uh, through coordinated, more coordinated global uh, multilateral uh, efforts. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, so Jim, and uh, so, so we started with your, uh, your financial time paper just two days ago, uh, uh -huh. you know, Briggs, uh, uh, you know, uh, how, how some of the disappointed you have. I mean, the, the, the editor gave you a very, very sensational title, but but China probably is the least disappointing. China actually probably outperformed expectations uh, in terms yes, of yes, it uh, did. Uh, go GBT development. So 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 now you know we're having you. Uh, you know we're having a large audience of China today here from you. And so what's your expectation for China and how China can you know play a better role? I mean you have always championed uh, BRICS countries' role mm -hmm. uh, for the global development and global de global governance in the future. Thank you, Henry. And again, listen, thank you so much for including me. Uh, I just want to uh, also say one thing uh, that I think, to reiterate in my own mind, something that Leslie said early on in this discussion that's so important. <clears throat> Even though 20 years uh, is a long time in my lifetime, in the history of, of man and women and life, it's not. And, and, and as Leslie said, the BRICS Development Bank has only been in existence for six years. So uh, I look forward to uh, the discussion the three of us have in another decade when it's 30 years and 16 years, uh, because, you know, it's important to, to keep that in perspective, um, because we live in an era where there is a lot of negative mood about so much. Second thing 
and why I say it that way is uh, one thing I learned throughout my life at Goldman Sachs in particular is uh, never let a crisis go to waste. Never. And the, the making of how uh, most of us are as individuals or any countries or any governments is how you deal with a crisis. Crises will always happen. Uh, they are unavoidable because they are a consequence of human beings. And the key issue is we all need to respond to them properly. And again, Leslie's right about this one in COVID. This creates enormous opportunities for things to be thought about doing differently, including cooperation. And then thirdly, it leads me lastly to your specific point about China. I think as we can see, and here again, uh, I hope I, I, I tread carefully in my words. I think we can see in recent years, uh, China uh, sometimes finds itself a little bit surprised about the scale of global focus on China. Uh, and, and of course, it's understandable because China's emergence has been so new. Uh, but as China gets more and more bigger, it has to find a better way of integrating its own thinking and what's right for its own citizens with the desires of the rest of the world. Uh, and I, I, and my, every time I've ever, the, the 30 or 40 times I've been to China in my life, I'm always so remarkably impressed with the, uh, the educational and technical abilities of so many people I meet. But I think in order for China to, to deal well with this next decade and beyond, it's got to find uh, a slightly different way of, of positioning how it thinks and, integ and, and, and integrates with the rest of the world, which, by the way, is just as important for the rest of the world as it is for China's 1.3 billion people. Yeah, that's uh, you know really uh, impressive. Uh, really uh, great. Thank you, <laughs> Jim. I think we are, we are entering a very uh, uh, you know challenging time and also also challenging world at the probably once in a century that uh, we are experiencing this uh, pandemic. As you said uh, rightly, that we should not let crisis <laughs> wasted. We should really giving a new new birth and a new system and, and improvement of our current global governance system. And uh, you know, for the last 76 years of the Second World War, we had global governance, you know, point one, point one oh. Uh, 1.0, of course, <laughs> global governance 1.0. Now we're getting the global governance 2.0. So I, so I really uh, uh, thank you for your uh, proposing the BRICS countries, proposing China, and uh, give give the credit of China performance. But I think you know we should the world should really work together and uh, and uh, with the development countries, with all the G20 countries, and I think that development banks actually uh, has a very good example of how we can work together. So. So thank you for 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 creating this uh, concept mm -hmm. uh, twenty years ago, and uh, now uh, we we have the chance to talk. And I hope that actually another after another decade we can come talk again. So really appreciate your time, and uh, and thank you and uh, Leslie for sharing your uh, wisdom. And thank you so much, and also thank our audience tonight. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah.